So just to uh, correct the record from yesterday, um, we talked about Aharon. So what's unique about Aharon is not necessarily the length of time, but rather the fact that it was Kol Beis Yisrael, it was all of the Jewish people. Whereas with Moshe, it says that the Jewish people mourned for him. When it comes to Aaron, it says, call base Israel, all of Israel and the house of Israel specifically. And so that's where we derive that there was something special about Aaron, where the people had felt this great love for him that they had even, even um, more than they had for Moses. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to correct the record is I said that Hor Hahar, the mount of the mountain, Rashi uses the word tapuach, that it was a small tapuach, a big tapuach, and a small tapuach on top. So I translated tapuach as apple, but I saw in the commentaries that tapuach in this instance doesn't necessarily mean apple, but tapuach can mean a mound, like the, the mound of, of ashes that was on the on the altar is called a tapuach. So more appropriately, it's one mound on top of another. I don't think it means apple on top of an apple. Although I like the imagery of the apple on top of an apple, it's probably not what Rashi had in mind. Okay, let's go on in the story. So what happened yesterday, Aaron passes away. And there's a connection between Aaron's passing and what happens next. What happens next? This is Numbers chapter 21, verse 1. Vayishma haknani, the Canaanite king, Melech Arad, the king of Arad, Yoshev HaNegev, who dwells in the south, that Israel was coming by the root route of the spies. This word, HaSarim, Rashi will give two interpretations. The translation here goes according to the first interpretation, that it means spies, like we had in, in Parsha Shlach, via Turu. So the word Tar can mean to, to scout or to spy, to tour. He wages war against Israel. And takes from them a captive. Rashi is going to tell us that there's a lot going on over here between the lines. First of all, and he heard. What did he hear? Well, you say, well, he heard that Israel had come by the route of the spies. But that's nothing new. They've been in, they've been in the desert for 38 years now, or 39 years. Why is it suddenly waking up that he heard that the Jews are coming to Canaan? That's nothing new. Rather, says Rashi, what did he hear? He heard that Aharon had passed away. Shemait Aharon. And that because Aharon had passed away, the clouds of glory that were surrounding the Jewish people and protecting them miraculously, which had been there in the merit of Aharon, that because they had, um, that he had passed away, the clouds were now gone. And this, this is what the king had heard. And says, ah, now we can attack the Jewish people because these miraculous clouds are no longer protecting them. Now Rashi is going to tell us that in fact it was the Amalekites that were coming after them. And why are they called Canaanites? The answer is because the, the Amalekites were very clever. And what they did is they, they dressed themselves up as Canaanites. Why did they do this? They did this because they knew that the power of the Jewish people is in their prayer. And they also knew that the prayer has to be precise. So the Jewish people think that the, it's the Canaanites that are coming after them. 
They're going to pray to God and say, oh God, please protect us from the Canaanites. But they weren't being attacked by the Canaanites or being attacked by the Amalekites. But the Jews were smart. And so they thought there was something suspicious. On the one hand, they claimed to be, they looked like they were Canaanites. They were dressed like Canaanites, but they looked like Amalekites. Now remember like the Canaanites, Canaan, if you remember from Genesis, Parshish Noach, the Canaanites come from Ham. Whereas Amalek comes from Esav, from Eliphaz. So they come from a whole different line. And they would look different. So according to at least one commentary, or one way of understanding it, they were dressed like Canaanites, but they saw that their, their, uh, their facial features were, were Amalekites. And so therefore what the Jews did, very clever, they made an open-ended prayer, a general prayer. Instead of saying, save us from the Canaanites, they just said, save us from these enemies. And so it worked. And as the verse says, even though there was a war, nobody was killed. And they took a captive. Now, Rashi is going to point out, as the commentators explain, it doesn't say they took a person. You don't take a captive. You take a person, and that person becomes a captive. What does it mean that they took a captive? It means they, they captured someone who was a captive in the hands of Israel. In other words, from the previous war, there was someone who was held by the Jewish people as a captive. Rashi says this was a, a, a maidservant. Or maybe some come some commentaries say became a maidservant because she was a captive, and now the Amalekites took this captive back from this previous war. Let's look at Rashi. Yeshiv um, Hanegev, those that dwelled is dwelled in the south. That refers to the Amalekites, as as the commentaries say. The Canaanites did not live in the south, so this was the Amalekites. So why are they being called Kenani? Because they changed their language to speak in the language of Canaan. So the Jewish people would pray to God to hand the Canaanites into their hands, but they're not Canaanites. However, the Jewish people saw their clothing and suddenly they were, they were dressed like Amalekites. On the other hand, they're speaking like Canaanites. What's going on? So he said, let's be safe. Let's pray Stam, a prayer that is not specific. And as we, we will indeed see in the, in the coming verses where it says, The Jewish people said, if you, God, will give this nation into our hands. They didn't say the Canaanites or the Amalekites. They just said this nation, whoever they are. Now Rashi, as I said, gives two interpretations of what this means, the route of the spies. Or in Hebrew, ha'asarim. The first interpretation is as the translation has it, that it's by way of the south, the same way that the spies went. As it says that the spies went up by the south, the Negev, the dry Negev. Dover Acharashi gives a second interpretation that they were going, the route of the great guide, which is the ark, and he sailed of name that would travel in front of them, for three days ahead, to seek for them a place to settle. So either refers to the spies or it refers to the ark. I'll just uh, I'll just pause here for a second for a Hasidic interpretation from the Rebbe where he says that these two explanations, whether we're talking about going up as the, the traveling of the spies, the route of the spies or the route of the ark, is two ways that we can fight Amalek. 
Amalek is the enemy of the Jewish people physically, but also the enemy of the Jewish people spiritually is there is an inner Amalek. Amalek is doubt, cynicism, coldness, apathy. And how do you deal or more generally with the Yetzirah, with the evil inclination? And so the Rebbe says there's two ways. One, when the evil inclination comes to you, a uh, rational, the rational argument, why you shouldn't do the right thing, then you can argue rationally and you could say, well, the mitzvahs are good for us. The averus, the sins are not good for us. You can come with a rational, logical approach. That's the approach, the route of the spies. The spies came to Israel with a rational approach of how to, of how to conduct warfare. Um, let's see, what's the best way? Where are they weak? Where can, we, where can we find their weak spots to attack? That's a rational approach to Amalek, to the enemy. However, there's sometimes where Amalek or that inner voice within us does not come with logic. It comes with an apathy and with a coldness that's not based on logic. And you can't fight that with logic. You have to fight it with transcendence with a soulful transcendence. And that's represented by the second interpretation, which is not the route of the spies, but the route of the great, the great guide, which is represented by this miraculous transcendent arc. So what do the Jews do? verse two, Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if God will give this, give, he will give this nation into my hands. I will consecrate their cities, you know, I will dedicate it to God. As Rashi says, Akdish Shalom, not the cities themselves, but rather the spoils of this war, I will consecrate to heaven for holy things for the temple. Verse 3, So God hears the voice of Israel, and he hands the Canaanites. And he destroyed them. So he destroyed the people. And he consecrated their cities. So it's interesting. As Rashi will tell us, this word, when it refers to the people, it means destroy. And when it refers to the cities, it means to consecrate. And he called the place Chorma, which means either destroy or consecrate. Verse 4, they traveled away from Horhahar by way of the Red Sea, as we learned yesterday, they had to go under Edom, they had to go south to go around Edom to the east, and come up on the other side, of, on the east side of the Jordan. But tiksa oh, things, things get testy with the Jewish people. Literally, well, here he has translated, they became disheartened because of the way, but the literal translation over here of the Hebrew, vatiksa nefesh, literally means their soul became short or became small. And the way Rashi interprets it, I would say the correct translation for Vatiksar Nefesh should be they became overwhelmed. And Rashi uses unusual. Rashi gives a kind of a very um, uh, elaborate psychological explanation of what's going on with a person. And that's how he explains it. It's all, it's all about the, the language. What does it mean that their soul became short? Vatiksar Nefesh. So somebody, I want to read that Rashi. Rashi says, anything that is very that is that is too hard for a person to handle, we use this expression kitzur nefesh, like a person who is becomes overly burdened. 
his his mind is not wide enough, broad enough, to accept, to receive that matter. And listen to this one. He doesn't have place within his heart for that pain to dwell. Read that again. His, 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 there is no place in his heart for that pain to contain that pain. And that's what it means. Their soul was too small, was too short. They couldn't handle all of this travail that was going on. And as Rashi says, means, as the translation here has it, because of the way, not on the way. Rashi goes into great length to explain why I can't just mean that they became disheartened on the way while on the way. I won't get into that. But he says rather, rather that they became disheartened because of the way, or as I would translate it, they became overwhelmed with all of these travails because of all of these of the way, meaning the travails of all the traveling and all the all the issues that they were encountering. Rashi tells us something very important. When it says Derech Yamsuf by way of the Red Sea, Rashi tells us, Aaron had died. Now this war came. They started to go back. They started to go backwards to the Red Sea, to the Sea of Reeds. And they went back seven stops. So we have the, the famous um, 42 spots, two, two stops that the Jewish people made from Egypt to Israel. So in this, in, this, in this verse, the Torah is describing that they actually went backwards seven stops. And, when they, and, they, and they went back to a place called Moisera. And there they mourned and eulogized for Aharon, even though he had passed in Hor Hahar. This was seven stops away. They stopped there and they mourned and, and eulogized Aaron as if he was as if he was there in front of them. Verse 5, Now the people are speaking against God and against Moses. Why have you, and Rashi says that the you here should be a plural you. In English, we don't have a plural you. We used to have one, the. Why have you, you and God and Moses, why have you, as Rashi says, if it would have been, the commentary say it would have been helitanu. Helitanu would mean one. Helitunu means two, plural. Mimitzrayim, why have you taken us up from Egypt to die in this desert? There is no bread and there's no water. V'nafshenu katsa, our souls are disgusted by this, uh, as Rashi says, not rotten as they have it, from the word kal, which means light, this insubstantial bread, the man is insubstantial. As Rashi says, the Lakim of Moshe, they spoke against God and Moses. They were like equating the servant with his master, and they're they're talking against both of them. Rashi on the words Vinafshinu Katza, our souls are disgusted, says that this also is the same idea as what we talked about in the last verse, Lashin Kitsur Nefesh, meaning that they, they're they're overwhelmed and they can't take it. Now, why are they calling it lechem haklokel, this in, insubstantial bread? Says Rashi, because the man was absorbed into their into their limbs. That's why they call it klokel. 
Amru, they said, Asid Haman This man is going to explode in our innards. Klum Yeshi Lud Isha. Is there a human born of a mother? Shemachnes Veinim Moitzi that can take in food and not excrete it? When the child is a fetus, yes, but once it's born, once it's Yilud Isha, once it comes out and it's a human, unlike a mosquito, for example, is it possible that he would, would take in and not take out? So this, this mana is bad news. So what happens? Verse um, 6, God sends, dispatches into the nation these venomous snakes who bite the people and a, a large portion of the Jewish people pass away. They die because of the snakes. And why are they called Serafim? Saraf? Saraf means... Uh, comes from the word a fire to mean to burn and the the snakes they burn the person with their venom why dafka why did god choose for them to be punished via snakes rashi tells us let the snake that was punished by god for speaking badly when he spoke to adam i'm sorry to eve to convince her to eat from the fruit so that that not the nachash is representative of this kind of negative speech. So because the Jewish people had spoken negatively, let this snake come and punish them. And a second reason Rashi gives is that the nachash, the snake, everything that it eats always tastes like dirt for it. It always tastes like dust. It just has one taste. And yet the Jewish people who have the mana, which could taste like almost anything, they're complaining about the mana when the snake has only one taste. So Rashi calls them that the people are being ungrateful. So the Jewish people, as we've seen many times, doesn't take much for them to repent. So they come to Moshe and they say, we sinned, this is verse 7, because we spoke against you, against God and against you. Pray to God and let him take from upon us the nachash, the snake. And Moshe prays for them. And here is very interesting. I'll, I'll end with this. Moshe prays on behalf of the people. And I'll just share with you a teaching of the Rebbe on this, which is quite amazing. Um, Rashi, it's on Rashi, so I'll read the Rashi. Mikan, from here we derive, that if somebody asks you for forgiveness, you should not be so cruel so as not to forgive. The Rebbe says something really powerful over here and he says as follows he says that when a person harms you and you're in a position to forgive them and this is what happened with Moshe I mean they really uh, attacked Moshe verbally there's two ways of doing it one is and this is the model with Abraham and Avimelech if you recall back from Genesis that the person is being punished because of their bad deed as Avimelech was punished for taking Sarah so the the most basic thing is this feel bad for the guy he made a mistake. I don't want him to be punished. All right, I forgive him. Avi Melech is not being punished anymore. But do you really love the person? No, Abraham doesn't love Avi Melech. He gets rid of the punishment for him, but that's it. In the case of his own people, here Moshe goes beyond just praying for them that this snake should go away from them. He prays for the people. It doesn't say he prayed for the snakes to go away. He said he prayed for the people. He wanted the people to be really, really reformed. And... The lesson from that is, the Rebbe takes from it, is that when we forgive a person, to really forgive with our, our whole heart and to pray for the person, 
not just that they shouldn't be punished for what they did, but to pray for their goodness and that they should they should do teshuva and and become become the uh, the people that they can be. So we'll pause there, open it up to Q and A and comments from a wonderful listenership. If you have if you if you want to uh, send a question by chat, you can do that as well. It's certainly a lot to discuss. Uh, well, Rabbi, I, I, there's so much here and uh, so many profound kind of different lessons, I, I guess we could say. Um, I was pretty impressed in the beginning. You talked about the great guide is found in transcendence. And it seems like this, this theme comes back over and over and over again in so many different ways here again of our ego, which can rationalize, we can rationalize anything we do, actually. But that's, that's different than surrendering to a wisdom that is a transcendence that guides us rather than our own reason, our own rationality. So I, I just thought it, it just seems so powerful that, that message that seems to come through over and over again. And even the Jewish people getting caught in these sinning often because they're not stopping to transcend or they wouldn't do that. Uh, we, we all wouldn't do that. I, 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 so anyway, that's excellent. Yes, yeah, a great, a great, uh, great point. Transcendent guide. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Transcendent guide. Thank you. Thank you. Bruce. Thank you. It is reported that Adam lived over 900 years. Noah lived 350 years. Abraham lived 120 years. Sarah, 127 years. Moses lived 120 years. Aaron lived 123 years. My question is about lifespans. Obviously, over time, the length of time that people lived was reduced. In the time of Moses, we know that most people lived 60 years because they died in the desert. But just prior, in the latter days of Egypt, for example, did the average person live this long or just these incredible figures? And also, when they entered the land of Israel uh, and entered the physical world, did people's lifespans get reduced again? Or did Joshua, for example, live likewise a very long time? That's a great question. Um, we do have... In the Talmud, some of the rabbis that it says of them that they lived for 120 years. I think it's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. Uh, so, you know, this idea of living for 120 years, I mean, we have it until today where we always, we bless people to say, may you live to 120. So I think that that certainly continued. What was the average? I don't know. And I don't know how long Yoshua uh, lived. So in answer to your question, I think that people did continue to live to 120, certainly individuals, but I don't know what the, what the average was. I see. Thank you. And do, you do you have a um, thought of why, for example, lifespans went from 900 to the 350s and then 350s to 120? Right. So that you had... Um, after the flood, in general, the, the, before the flood, the 
the physicality of the world was a lot stronger. And part of what the flood accomplished was toning down the physicality, physical strength of the world, the physical strength of people and the strength of the earth. Everything was weakened. And partially that was because the fact that there was such brute strength of the physical that made it very difficult for the soul to emerge, for the voice of the soul to be heard. So it was kind of necessary to weaken everything. So after the flood is when you see the lifespans starting to go down. Thank you. And there, that's where it says, you know, his li lifespan will be 120 years. Yeah, I thought that um, I've read a number of places that our DNA is actually built to go 120 healthy years. Um, you know, maybe that's part of the coming back to the Mashiach. Um, we live 120 healthy years. And then, you know, the whole other concept of, I don't know if we'll call it the kiss, but, you know, of passing away gracefully, not having to suffer into uh, passing away, right? Um, so that would make sense. And, and so then it becomes, what are we doing to make it less than 120 years and in some cases um, not so pleasant, right? I don't. That was a great question, Bruce, too. And summary, by the way. Right. So that's a, that's a great point. And, um, you know, I wouldn't blame it all on us of what we're doing. Because, you know, you see many righteous people that, you know, did not live long lives and who did suffer towards the end of their lives. So I think it's it's in the realm of you know, that which is beyond us, it's God's God's realm. Um, but certainly, certainly, yes, anything that we can do, living a healthy, healthy life, making healthy choices, good choices, like we tell our kids, make good choices, that helps uh, doing our part. And like you said, I think it's a great point when Mashiach comes, you can see that returning and returning to that type of death that's described in our Parsha with Miriam and Aaron, the divine kiss, where it's where it's a tranquil and serene um, transfer from one from one from one realm to another without all the pain that we associated these days. Can can I add just I'm sorry, I know we're over. Can I add one thought on that of clarification? Sure. Um, so when I say what we're doing, I think it's, I better clarify what I'm thinking there. I think it's our belief systems. The more our and stronger our belief systems in Hashem are, it's not as much what we eat or vitamins we take type thing, right? Now that's a byproduct of our beliefs. So if Hashem speaks to us, you know, you get those incentives to, I've asked for this in my belief system. And you get this like, hey, I should go do this or do that. And that's Hashem talking in many ways. If our belief systems continue to evolve into this healthy belief systems, which brings us closer to Hashem, 
that's what I was thinking there, uh, which is ties to the Mashiach to, in, in many ways, because it makes everything better all the time. And the better it gets, the closer we get to Mashiach. I don't know. That's what I meant there, just to clarify. So sorry to jump in again. No worries. Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying. That's an excellent point. 100%. The closer we get to that, by, I would just say that, you know, I'm agreeing with you. Collectively, as the world gets to that, that has an impact on everyone. I'll just add something quickly here. I just it just reminded me, my daughter works at Calico, which is a subsidiary of, of Google um, Alphabet and doing anti-aging research they do there. She doesn't work in that area. They have all some of the best scientists they could get and they can take money to get them. So they get them. They haven't been able to find one thing that relates to longevity that they could really, they thought genetics would be a factor. It's really not. They thought lifestyle would be a factor. It's really not. They haven't found anything yet that they could say, well, yes, if you could just do this, you're going to live a lot. So there, there's something mysterious. In this. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Bill, for sharing that. Thank you all for joining us today and wishing you a wonderful Shabbat. We didn't get to finish the whole Parsha, but we got a lot. I'll tell you a story that was a young uh, Rabbi Shmuel, the fifth, fourth Rabbi of, of Chabad, when he was little, he asked his father if he can get a new book. And he said, did you learn all of the other books that you have already? <laughs> right? So, you know, we got to finish the Parsha, but we definitely have a lot of information for what we've studied so far and a lot to unpack and to apply in our lives, but we should try to finish the Parsha. That's a custom. That's our tradition to try to finish the whole parsha every week so wish everybody a good shabbos and we will see you on sunday bezrat hashem